Good morning. Good to see you all here today. Um, I want to start by, in the same way I started last week, raise your hand if you're called to full-time ministry of the gospel. Come on. Come on. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are called to full-time ministry. All right? That is our calling. That's our purpose. Some of us get paid to do that. Most of us don't. We have to earn our living another way. Um, some of us are young, and we don't have to listen to the pastor's sermon. But, you know, that's, that's a whole other matter. But you are called into the ministry of the gospel, full time. And God has a purpose for you. That's, our, that's the whole purpose of our year in ministry this year here at First Baptist. We're trying to equip you for that so you know what your calling is. You know the people you were called to reach. You know the way God wants to use you. Um, that's that's whole, the whole idea behind the missional pathway that we've been on. Uh, we know we've been telling you about an event that's coming up in October, October the 6th, called Assess. Another one in November called Advance, November the 3rd. I wanted you to write those two dates down because that's when we're going to gather together as a church over those two dates. And we're going to decide, we're going to make decisions as a congregation. What are we going to do to make a bigger impact on our community together for the sake of Christ and so that more people will come to know Him. More people will come into the family. I hope you'll be a part of that. Even if you haven't been part of that process up till now, we want you to be a part of that. I wanted to start today by telling you about a friend of mine. Uh, Jerry Cook passed away about a month ago. Uh, Jerry was a football star when he was a young man. He, he went to Galena Park High School, just tore it up there, went to the University of Texas. Um, he still, while he was at UT, he set a record for uh, interceptions in the Cotton Bowl that still stands to this day. He played for the Houston Oilers for a little while. Then after the game, he went into building. Uh, he, was a, he was a builder. Um, by the time I knew Jerry, he was retired, and he wasn't known as a football star anymore, although still a big old huge guy. He'd walk up to you on a Sunday morning and grab you by the arm, and you'd think, man, I'm so glad you're not mad at me, because you would tear me in half if you wanted to. But I knew him as a soul winner, and that's how people at, at my previous church knew Jerry Cook. He was a deacon there, and he was a man who just he just loved going and sharing the gospel with people. And I could stand in the pulpit on Sunday morning, I could look around the room, and I could see people and say, okay, they're here because Jerry visited them. She's here because Jerry shared the gospel with her. My insurance agent to this day is a lady who was born in a Jewish family, didn't know anything about Jesus until Jerry came and shared the gospel with her, and now she is a soul winner herself and a follower of Jesus Christ. So I remember one of the first conversations I had with Jerry, um, he came up to me and he, and he said, how do you share the gospel today? Because he knew, like a lot of us who grew up in church, for years, for decades, the process of sharing the gospel of Jesus was very simple. Now, it wasn't easy. It still uh, it was something that most people didn't do. Most churches didn't do enough of, but we knew how. The process was simple. All you had to do was you went to some kind of a little training and you learned some method, some prepared presentation of the gospel, whether it was the Roman road or continuing witness training or the four spiritual laws or evangelism explosion. If you've not didn't grow up in church, those, those don't mean anything to you, but some of us, we know these things. You learned how to give this pitch, right? And then you went door to door and you gave your pitch. And some people believed and some people didn't. And then once a year, your church would have a week-long series of revival meetings where you'd bring in an outside evangelist and he'd preach and people would walk the aisle and get saved. And that's how you grew your church. That's how you brought people into the family. But Jerry, would, Jerry was saying to me, well, how do we do that today? Because he knew 
You know, people aren't really interested in hearing my prepared pitch anymore. I got good at it. I, this is the method I used, but now they don't want to listen to my presentation of the gospel. I knock on the door and they won't let me into their house. It's just a different age. We, we quit throwing revivals a long time ago because we'd do it. We'd pay all this money and bring in an evangelist and do all this promotion. And the only people that would show up would be people from other churches who would want to hear a preacher. So how do we, how do we share the gospel today? And I said, Jerry, I'm, I'm not an expert, but from everything I'm reading and everything I'm seeing, it's just we're going to have to work harder. We're just gonna, it's just going to take longer. I'm not saying there aren't still people who will believe the first time you talk to them. It's just going to be rarer and rarer that that happens. I, th- I think from now on, we're going to have to earn the right to share the truth about Jesus with people because they won't, they won't just automatically trust us like they once did. They'll have to see that we care about the community. They'll have to see us engaged in loving people in Jesus' name. We'll have to meet their physical and emotional needs. We'll have to prove to be a friend to them over time. And it's not going to be the kind of thing where you'll just show up and someone's going to listen to you. They'll have to know you for a period of months or years before they'll finally trust you to share. And that's what this series is about, Jesus and Unbelievers, because I don't think a lot of us have realized up to now the responsibility we have, but we do. We are called to be the the line of communication between God and those who don't know Him yet. And a lot of us don't know how to do that. So we're looking at stories of Jesus and how He brought people into the family of God, how He interacted with people who didn't believe. Now, I want to I tell you, switch gears here for a minute, tell you about a little, a little bird that lives in Alaska called the bar-tailed godwit. There's a picture up on the screen. This is not a very impressive-looking bird. Nobody wants this in a cage in their house. Um, but the bar-tailed godwit does an amazing thing once a year. These birds live in Alaska, but once a year they fly to New Zealand. That's 7,000 miles. And I don't know how well you know the globe, but there's no land between Alaska and New Zealand. They're over the Pacific Ocean the entire time. And they're not water birds, so they can't land. So 7,000 miles, they are flying the entire time. That's, that's no rest, that's no sleep, that's no food or water. I was going to say no bathroom breaks, but you know better, right? But here's the thing. No one knows why they do it. For some reason, there's, there's some kind of a, an internal, unseen beacon that just calls to their hearts that says, go here. And so imagine being a one-year-old Bartel Godwit. You've never been to, a, to New Zealand before. All of a sudden, all your buddies are like, let's go. And you go. Every year they do this. Now, the reason I tell you that is to tell you this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God, he, God that is, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, which is Solomon's way of saying that inside of us, we have a beacon calling us. We were made in the image of God, and we are called, we are constantly called to a relationship with Him. That is is the homing beacon that is alive in our hearts. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. That's what Augustine of Hippo said about 1,500 years ago. So we have that homing signal, just like the Bartel Godwit, but unlike them, we're stubborn. 
So most of us spend most of our lives resisting that call or misinterpreting that call and thinking what I really need, what I really need is to get married and that'll, that'll settle things down. Or I need to, I need to find, um, Mr. or Ms. Wright, my soulmate. That's what I'm looking for. Or I need to have kids. I, I need to check off these things off my bucket list. And we resist, we ignore, we distract ourselves from that call. But at some point in our lives, Usually after some dream has collapsed, some plan has crumbled, or we're at the end of our rope, at some point in our lives, all of us reach a point where we say, why am I here? What is this life really all about? And it's got to be more than what I've experienced so far. And at that point, we become searchers. We become seekers. Seekers after the truth. And we may not know we're seeking God, but that's what's going on in our lives. One of the things I think that's going on in the world right now is in the United States of America and in Western Europe, there's not as many people seeking as there used to be. Whereas you talk to missionaries who are doing work in Africa and China, South America, people are seeking God and they're coming to know Christ left and right. Here it's not as frequent as it once was, but they're still seeking. Your friends, your neighbors still have that same homing beacon in in their hearts We've just got more things to distract ourselves with in America in, the, in this era. But there comes that point where they realize this is not enough. And we've got to be ready for those conversations. So what do we do? That's what we're talking about today. Jesus, how he responded to seekers. We're going to look at his conversation with a very famous seeker in John chapter 3. Now John 3 is one of the monumental chapters in the entire Bible. I could spend weeks just on this chapter I'm going to have to, as a preacher, do something very frustrating for me, and that is run very quickly through a very, very profound text of Scripture because I'm trying to get to a single point, and that is, how did Jesus respond to Nicodemus? How did he show this man who was seeking truth what he should be seeking, and what can we learn from that? Now, who's Nicodemus? You probably heard his name if you grew up in church. Nicodemus was a very religious man. He was a member of the Pharisees, which meant he was part of the strictest and most respected branch of Judaism. So if you were alive then, you looked at him and you said, he is as close to God as it is humanly possible to be. He was also a member of the ruling council of Judaism, uh, of the the Israelite nation. So he had a lot of political um, and social power and influence. He was also a wealthy man. And wealth wasn't as big a deal in that culture as it is today. It wasn't as much a status symbol as it is today, but it was still pretty nice to have. And it was still seen by people as, well, you're doing well, so God must be pleased with you. And yet, in spite of all of this, Nicodemus was still seeking more. And we know that because it says, we're about to read this, that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And what's significant about that is Nicodemus' colleagues among the Pharisees had been coming to see Jesus for a long time, but they'd been coming in groups and standing on the outskirts of the crowd. They'd been coming for the purpose of trying to sniff out inconsistency in Jesus, trying to find some fault in him so they could slow down his popularity or prove that he wasn't Messiah. Nicodemus doesn't do that. He comes by himself and he comes at night. And we can infer that's because he knows if people know that I'm absolutely literally interested in Jesus and think he might have the answers. If people know that, I could lose everything. Because this is a controversial man who hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors and other sinful people, and I can't be seen in that crowd. So here's a man who has, from the world's perspective, has everything, and yet he is so 
urgently seeking truth, that he's willing to risk it all and come to Jesus. So with that background, let's look at this conversation, starting with chapter 3, verse 1. How do we have these conversations? Verse 1, now there was a Pharisee, a man, of, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the sights you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now here's why it must have been frustrating to talk to Jesus at times. Because Nicodemus comes to him and he comes with the right kind of attitude. If you're coming and you want to get something from someone, it helps to kind of butter them up a little, right? Nicodemus is following accepted social customs. He comes to Jesus and says, you're a great teacher. You perform signs that prove you are absolutely from God. So um, I just want to I just want to know what you know. And Jesus doesn't even respond to his words of flattery. His next words are basically offensive to Nicodemus. He says, "Yeah, whatever. What well, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. You need to become someone else. You need to change." or you can't be accepted into God's kingdom. Now, I don't know about you. I think I do know about you, actually. I think we all would be the same way. If we were Jesus, and we'd spent the night before sleeping on the dirt, and that morning we hadn't had breakfast, and the night before we'd had to share one meal between three or four disciples and yourself, and you knew that all of your followers were basically the dregs of humanity, and you had no money, and you had no resources, and you were unpopular, among the, uh, the elites and, the, and the, the polite society, if Nicodemus showed up saying those kinds of words, I think anybody in this room would, would have responded by saying, hey, it's great to see you. Man, I'm so glad you are interested. I, I just want to invite you to hang out with us. Uh, if you want coffee, we'll go get you some. Um, we could use your resources. We could use your influence. We need to partner with you. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus tells him the truth. Nicodemus, in spite of all your outward appearances of righteousness, it's not enough. You have to be born again. By the way, side note, if you've ever heard people say, well, I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm not one of those born again types. You know, that term born again Christian has sort of become synonymous for holy roller, for uh, you know, a religious fanatic. Guess what? Jesus said there's only one kind of Christian, and that's the born again kind. That's the kind who has been transformed by an encounter with the Son of God. But we'll get into that. Verse 4. So Nicodemus doesn't know how to respond to this. This conversation's already going in a way he didn't expect. So I think I interpret this next statement as humor, his attempt at a joke. He says, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely we cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. But Jesus isn't having any of that. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now, don't give me this, oh, well, I've studied meteorology. I know where the wind comes from. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is, listen, Nicodemus. You don't understand. This is not something you can do on your own any more than you can make the wind blow. 
It's not going to help you to go to the synagogue more. It's not going to help you to study the Torah more. It's not going to help you to try harder to be good. This is something only God can do. It is a supernatural act. And notice Nicodemus' next question, verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. I mean, that's, that's his whole world, is self-effort and, and religious activity. Jesus says, you are, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify in what we have seen, but you, still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus uses a couple of Old Testament motifs that you may not be familiar with. First of all, he talks about the Son of Man. If you've read the Gospels, you know Jesus uses that term a lot. And it's a reference to Daniel 7.13, which you can look up anytime. Daniel 7.13 talks about a messianic figure called the Son of Man. So this is Jesus' favorite description of himself. It is a messianic term. Um, It's not the favorite one of the Jews, but it's the one Jesus used most often. He's referring to himself there. Nicodemus doesn't know that yet, but that's what he's doing. And then he says, hey, Nicodemus, remember remember how our forefathers, when they were in the wilderness in Exodus, and, and, you know, they had gotten crossways with God again, they'd gotten rebellious against the Lord, and so all of a sudden they ran into these poisonous snakes, and a bunch of them got bitten, so of course they came running back to God, and Lord, we're so sorry, we were so rebellious, please forgive us, please heal us of these snake bites, and God said, okay, here's what you do, I'm a gracious God, I'll forgive you, just make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole, and then anyone who wants to trust in me again and repent, just come by, look at that snake, and you'll be healed. Jesus says, remember that? Well, in the same way, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a pole. And so anybody who comes to Him will be saved, not just temporarily, not just from a snake bite, but forever. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's saying, this supernatural event that I'm talking about where you need to be born again, need to become a new person so you're qualified to enter into God's kingdom, that that can't happen on your own effort. It's only going to happen when the Son of Man, the Messiah, gives His life for you on a cross. He goes on. Now you know, don't you, that the next verse we're going to read is John 3.16. Even if you aren't really a church-going type, you probably know John 3.16, but get this. There was a time when no one had ever heard those words before. Nicodemus is about to be the first person to ever hear John 3.16. So put yourself in his shoes to hear that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now let me just stop there. Nicodemus was a good man, but he was, like most people of his time, convinced that his God loved his people and no one else. Since he was a Jew and and Yahweh was the God of the Jews, he thought, well, God loves the Jews, and that's why he's sending the Messiah, to rescue the Jews. Jesus says, no, you got it all wrong. God loves the whole world. Son of man, the Messiah, the Son of God, is on a rescue mission for every single person, and anyone who will choose to be rescued by him will be saved. That was just a mind-blowing moment for Nicodemus. But he goes on in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So what Jesus is saying there is, listen, Nicodemus, what's going to determine everyone's destiny is how they relate to the Son of God. And just like we said, a lot of people are afraid to walk into that light because their deeds will be exposed. That, that's another way of saying they've got that homing beacon drawing them toward him, but they're resisting that. They don't want to go there because they want life their own way. But some people are drawn to the light. Some people are attracted to it, and we have to be ready for that. Now, obviously, again, we could spend a long time walking through this whole chapter and, and identifying what it teaches us about, about Jesus and how to know him and what we should be doing. But just real briefly, what does this teach us about how to have conversations with people who are seeking? Just three quick things, and then we're done. First of all, Never forget that what they need is Jesus. Never forget that what they need is Jesus. Jesus is a little different than us. Is that safe to say? I mean, if you and I were confronted with someone like Nicodemus, picture a modern-day version of that. Somebody who was buttoned up from, from head to toe, who, who just had their life totally put together, Great spouse, beautiful children, everything perfect, you know, little Stepford kids, right? Um, you know, perfect house, perfect life, always in church, said good things about Jesus. We would be tempted to meet that person if they came to us and said, I, I just think there's more to life. We'd be tempted to say, no, 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 you've found it all. You're living the life. You're doing it. But Jesus knows there's more. Jesus knows this guy has never been born again. This guy needs redemption. He needs transformation. He needs what only I can give him. On the other hand, there are a lot of us who would have been much more comfortable to steer that conversation towards social or political issues, things that we're more comfortable talking about. And I'm sure Jesus, if he would have wanted to, he and, he and Nicodemus could have had a lot of agreement about, you know, it's a shame to watch our Jewish young people uh, embracing Greek lifestyle and Greek habits and, and practices, or, man, the, the Romans sure are lousy rulers. I wish we could get rid of them. And, goodness, do we have to have another Herod on the throne? I'm sure they could have found lots of points of agreement on things like that, but Jesus doesn't steer the conversation that way. He is focused on one thing, and that is, Nicodemus' salvation. Now listen to me, please. I am not saying that if you're going to be a good follower of Jesus, every conversation you have with an unbeliever has to be this direct and this confrontational. I think most of us have enough emotional intelligence to know there are some times when people just aren't ready to talk about this. And there are other times when you can tell they're seeking. How can you tell they're seeking? Here's a good question. How do we know when God is at work in someone's heart? I'll tell you one way. If they're asking questions of a spiritual nature, if they're wanting to discuss spiritual issues, if they're talking about religion or God or morality in any way, pay close attention because we as human beings don't naturally think on those levels. We don't think about subjects like that. We don't want to talk about subjects like that. We're much more shallow 
But when someone is asking those kinds of questions or sharing those kinds of opinions, that's a sign that God is working in their heart. That's a sign that they're feeling that homing signal go off in their hearts and they're trying to figure out what is true. And they, be, they may be speaking their mind. They may be saying things that you find offensive. But that's still a sign that they are, they are questioning. They are seeking truth. So it's your responsibility and my responsibility to enter into dialogue with them at that moment. And when I say enter into dialogue, this is what I don't mean. I don't mean argue with them. Because there's arguing with people and then there's trying to persuade someone and those are two different things. I mean be humble, be gracious, show them the respect that you want other people to show you. But do your best to answer their questions, to pray with them, to dialogue with them and see what happens. That's what Jesus does here. You know, I had a professor in seminary who, who told us once, don't tell me you're witnessing unless you've talked about Jesus. Because that's what we do as Christians. We say, oh, I'm witnessing to a buddy of mine. And what we mean is we talked about moral things the other day. Or we argued about some political issues that kind of have a spiritual slant to them. Or I, I was just hanging out with this guy. That's not witnessing. You haven't shared your faith until you've told them about the one who can save their soul. So remember that. Again, it doesn't mean every conversation has to be about Jesus. It just means we need to have that as our goal, that eventually someday I hope that God will help me find a way that I can tell this friend, this acquaintance, here's who Jesus is and here's what he's done for me and here's what he can do for you. Second thing we learned from this conversation, we need to tell them about grace. So here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus had enough insight to know what Nicodemus' sins were, right? I think we can all agree Jesus could look at Nicodemus and he could know his heart. He could know, for instance, Nicodemus, you, you need to, I mean, you, you're very religious, you're very moral, but that's made you very proud and arrogant. You need to start washing feet and, and doing acts of service so you can become more humble. Um, you need to start paying your, your workers better wages. You need to start being more kind and patient with your wife and your kids instead of expecting them to be perfect all the time. And I don't know, I'm just projecting things onto Nicodemus that I think might have been true. Jesus knew and that's scary. Jesus could just walk up and go, okay, I, I can see your sin right now. But he doesn't bring any of that up. Jesus doesn't walk up to Nicodemus and tell him, okay, here's the things you need to change. He says, this is not something you can do by trying harder. By human effort, you're trying about as hard as a human can do it, and you're still not good enough. So let me tell you a better way. You need the grace of God. Salvation is a gift. I'm going to lay down my life for you on a cross and that's going to open up a door for you to be saved forevermore. You and that tax collector over there. You and that prostitute over there. You and that sinner over there. All of you walk through the same door. Now the reason I'm telling you this is that we as Christians have this bad habit of trying to fix other people's lives. We, we, we declare ourselves the moral policemen of society, and so we get caught up in the lifestyles of our non-Christian friends and trying to clean them up and make them presentable. And sure, I'd love to live in a world where nobody ever used the F word. I'd love to live in a world where nobody ever cheated on their spouse, where, where everybody followed the, uh, the social and sexual and, and emotional and financial ethic of Jesus Christ all the time. But it's not our job to make this a world without sin. It's our job to lead people to Jesus. 
Now, once they're in the church, once they're part of the family of God, you see sin in my life, you doggone well better get involved. Jump in, slap me around, tell me you need to change. Absolutely, that's part of being part of the family. But we waste so much time getting offended at non-Christians for, excuse me, for acting like non-Christians. What kind of logic does that make? We get offended because someone is using language that we don't like. Well, why shouldn't they use that language? They don't know our God. For, for following a sexual ethic that we find offensive, well, why should they think any different? That's the way we would be if we didn't know Christ. We know Christ, and we're still some of us that way sometimes, aren't we? Tell them about grace. Lead them to Christ. He's the one who will change their lives. What good would it do if we cleaned people up and, and made them look like good Christian people, but they still didn't have Christ in their hearts? They'd still be just as lost. So tell them about Jesus. Tell them about grace. And then third and finally, a conversation doesn't have to end with a conversion to be successful. This is so important for us to hear. Because we get caught up in this idea that, okay, I, I tried talking to my friend. We had this conversation. He was, he was kind of going on and on about God, and I jumped in, and I tried to answer his questions, and none of my answers really satisfied him. In fact, he seems a lot smarter than me, and so I'm, just, I'm not going to do that anymore. I, I'm not qualified. That, that's for preachers and Sunday school teachers and people who've been educated, and that's not me. But a conversation doesn't have to end with a conversion to be successful. You want proof of that? Nicodemus didn't talk to you or me. He talked to Jesus himself. Jesus spoke the words of John 3 to Nicodemus. None of us, nobody on this earth could do better than Jesus did in this conversation. And yet at the end of John chapter 3, Nicodemus is still not redeemed. He walks away. We don't see him again until John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, you know what Nicodemus is doing? He's still part of the council. He's still a Pharisee. He's trying to convince his fellow Pharisees, you know, this Jesus guy is not so bad. Maybe you should kind of feel him out before you condemn him. And they say, what, are you from Galilee too? And Nicodemus is like, well, no, uh, you know, leave me alone. I'm fine. I'm still one of you guys. And then we don't hear from Nicodemus again until the end of the book. John chapter 19, Jesus has just been crucified. So Nicodemus has just watched his colleagues in the Sanhedrin put Jesus through the sham of a trial, manipulate the, the Roman governor into crucifying him, and then stand and spit in his face as he dies in agony. Nicodemus witnesses all of that, and then he and a, and a fellow member of the council named Joseph of Arimathea approach Pilate after Jesus is dead, and they say, would you give us the body of the Nazarene? We want to bury him. Joseph here has a family tomb that he wants to put the body of Jesus in. I've brought 75 pounds of spices to anoint his body with. And by the way, 75 pounds, that is an exorbitant amount of spice to, to use to prepare a body for burial. That's, that's a burial fit for a king. Only the Jews and the Romans didn't think Jesus was a king. They thought he was a condemned criminal, an executed uh, a bad person. So what Nicodemus is doing right there is basically throwing away his life to say, I realized it too late, but this man is my king. I realized it too late, but this man is my Messiah. And I'm going to stand up for him now in, in his death, even though I didn't do it in life. And don't you know, nobody on this planet, not even Mary herself, was more excited about Easter Sunday than Nicodemus. 
when he found out oh, it's not too late. He's alive. Now, what is my point in saying that? Nicodemus spoke to Jesus himself. And it was still months, if not years, before he became a believer. Don't get upset if you have a conversation with someone and you feel like you lost an argument. Don't be upset if you can't answer all their questions. Don't feel like you failed if they say things that sort of stump you. You do what you can. You do what God equips you to do. Do your homework. Come back with some answers that you didn't think of at the time. But my point is, it takes time for people to come to Christ. It's little conversations here and there along the way that bring us step by step closer to the God who died to save us. Let me share this one last quote with you before we're done. So this is by Russell Moore. I read this a few years ago and it just stuck with me. He says, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a, a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. But the Spirit of God can turn all that around, and He seems to delight to do so. And that is so very true. He is the God of the new birth. He is the God of the fresh start. He is the God of brand new life. And we are the ones who get to, who get to deliver those new births into this world. And the world stands back in awe and wonder to see the amazing transformation God makes in people when they finally come home, when they finally answer that homing beacon inside their hearts. So this week, ask God to give you the eyes to see the people around you who are seeking. Even in America in the 21st century, there are probably people in your life right now their dreams have crumbled, their plans have collapsed, and they're saying, what, what is there? What is there for me? They're asking those spiritual questions. Enter into those conversations. You may not feel qualified. Guess what? Neither one of us are, but God still uses us. Enter into those conversations graciously, humbly, with kindness and respect for them and their opinions, but just keep dialoguing, keep praying, be their friend, be their truest and, and most faithful friend, and just see what God does. Be bold enough to tell them the truth about Jesus when you have a shot. Make sure they know that it's by grace and not by effort. It's not about cleaning themselves up. Jesus will do all the cleaning up that needs to be done. You see, you stick with those relationships prayerfully and faithfully over time. That's how eternity gets changed. Soul by soul, life by life, family by family. And we're blessed to be a part of it.